turn with me, if you will, to uh, the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. Uh, we are going to be hearing about God's mercy today. Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us in singing about the wonderful mercies of God. We're going to pick up where Pastor Ken left off last week, and so we will be spending our time in Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Uh, but because I need it and you need it, I'm going to pray one more time very briefly before we open the Word, so pray with me once more. Father, this is your Word. It is holy, it is good, and we need to hear your voice this morning. We need to be reminded that your mercies are more than our sins. We need to be reminded of your grace towards us in Christ and that we are never too far gone to turn back to you to receive forgiveness, to walk closely with our Creator, God. And Lord, we open up the pages this morning. We pray that you would teach us through Jonah's experience and his prayer and that you would conform us to the image of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Recently, I was thinking about my, my grandfather, my mom's dad, who passed away about nine years ago in Arizona. And during the last years of his life, he struggled greatly with dementia. And I was just thinking about one story in particular, a story that would be pretty funny if it wasn't for such a serious issue like dementia. But it was about the day that, that grandpa ran away, or I guess you would more, say the, more so say the, the day that grandpa wandered away. Here's what happened. My, my grandfather had already been showing signs of confusion. He had been told that he was not supposed to be driving, and yet no one had taken the keys out of the house. And so as you can imagine, one afternoon, he finds the keys. He tells my grandmother, I'm going to go out for a fish fry. And before she knows it, he's in the driveway backing the car out. And there was actually a restaurant nearby where he liked to get... Uh, fish on, on a Friday evening, but unfortunately, this little joyride was happening on a Sunday. <laughs> and so he's driving around somewhere in Tucson, and along the, the evening time, my, my parents get a phone call, I think from my grandmother, that, that he's been gone several hours. He's not answering his cell phone. And so they call the restaurant they know that he likes. He's not been there. They call a couple of other places they think he might have tried to go to, but, but no luck. And so it's now getting later in the evening. It's become clear that, that Grandpa has officially wandered off, and no one knows where he is, and so they need to call the police. They alert the police about the situation, and, and then they get in the car, and they start driving around town looking for him themselves. And so as they're driving around the city, they're praying and hoping that they just come across his car and that they can find him safe and sound. And lo and behold, as, as they're driving on I-10, they actually spot his car as he passes them in the other direction. Unfortunately, they couldn't get to him, though, because he was on the other side of the barrier on the frontage road, driving the wrong way against the flow of traffic. Thankfully, this whole episode ended safely with no car accidents because about 9 p.m., he ended up at a Chinese restaurant at closing time, about 45 minutes away from his house, and the owner was able to find my grandpa's cell phone and managed to call my parents. They were able to get him home safely. So, scary situation, but the point is my grandfather needed help in his wandering. There was just no way that he was going to casually find his way back 
on his own. He needed someone outside of himself to step in to pursue him so that he could return to where he was supposed to be. And after that, they took the car keys away. Well, here's the intersection with the prophet Jonah's story and with the rest of us today in the 21st century. When, when we're wandering away from God, we're not just going to casually find our way back on our own. We, too, need outside intervention. We need someone outside of ourselves to step in. We need the Lord himself to pursue us in his sovereign mercy. We saw last week in, in Jonah chapter 1 that Jonah was a runner. He not only wandered away from God, he purposely took off in the opposite direction that God had called him to go. You see, he hated the enemies of Israel so much that he refused to deliver God's message to the people of that great wicked city of Nineveh in Assyria. And so Jonah hopped a ship going from the coast of Israel to to Tarshish, So he was taking a westward journey toward what is now southern Spain, maybe thinking he's going to have a nice Mediterranean vacation instead of obeying the Lord. He's fleeing away from the city of Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq, the total opposite direction. Now how the Lord relates to his rebellious prophet demonstrates how we all desperately need God's mercy to pursue us if we're going to return to him. So we're going to spend most of our time in in Jonah chapter 2 this morning, looking at Jonah's experience through which we'll get three mercy-filled reminders that salvation belongs to the Lord. So that's how we're going to break down the text. Three mercy-filled reminders that salvation belongs to the Lord. Before I read chapter 2, let me just remind us of last week, in case you weren't here, the it says in, in Jonah 1.1, 1, 1, Now the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is a city on the coast. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And you heard the story last week. The Lord hurls upon them a great tempest. There's chaos. The the professional sailors are afraid for their lives. They start jettisoning jettisoning their cargo to keep the ship afloat. And Jonah, meanwhile, has gone down to the hull of the ship. He's asleep, avoiding the whole situation. And the captain awakes him and says, Hey, get up. Call out to your God so that we might not perish. They're trying to figure out What is the cause of this storm? And so they cast lots. The lot falls to Jonah. They realize this storm is upon us because of you. Who are you? What people are you from? And in verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew. I I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they say, What should we do? And Jonah says, Well, Cast me overboard into the sea and and you'll be saved. The the sea will be calmed. And so they try to get back to shore. They try to row as hard as they can. They can't do it. So they finally throw up their hands, ask for forgiveness from the Lord, and they cast Jonah into the sea. And the sea ceased from its, its raging. 
Here's where we pick up the story. Verse 17 of chapter 1 is really the beginning of the scene for us today. It says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. An amazing, true tale with God's sovereign mercy front and center. Notice that the parts of the story about the great fish, they're, they're not really embellished at all. They're very matter of fact. They're not played up for dramatic effect. And that's because, as Pastor Ken pointed out last week, this isn't really a story about a fish. It is interesting, it is unusual, but it's not really about a fish. It's a story about God. And you can see it in the structure of this section that as both parts about the fish are purposefully highlighting God's sovereign role over it all. In, in chapter 1, verse 17, and in chapter 2, verse 10, both the first and last sentences of this episode are even grammatically structured with the Lord as the subject. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And then at the end, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And so this first and foremost is a wild tale about God and his sovereign mercy. In any case, that's the first couple of chapters. You probably notice chapter 2 is do dominated by a prayer in the form of a psalm. Now, I don't take that Jonah whipped out some papyrus and was like writing meter and rhythms. Instead, he's crying out to the Lord, and later he records this psalm of his prayer. But it's dominated by his prayer which was uttered by Jonah in the belly of the fish, detailing his incredible experience. The final form, as recorded for us in this book, is pretty standard for a psalm of thanksgiving. There's the introduction and summary in verses 1 to 2. Jonah recalls his great distress in, in verses 3 to the beginning of 6. We see Jonah cries out to the Lord in, in verse 7. Jonah's deliverance was referenced in the last half of verse 6, and then Jonah's vow and praise in verses 8 and 9. A pretty standard psalm of thanksgiving structurally. But let's look a little deeper now to receive the first 
mercy-filled reminder that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is, first point this morning, God's sovereign mercy may arrive in unexpected ways. God's sovereign mercy may arrive in unexpected ways. Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving reminds us that God is always, always working out His purposes, even including the descending mercies of discipline in our lives. And what I mean by descending mercies is drawn out in the unfolding theme of of Jonah's continual descent downward in chapters 1 through 2. Do you recall Jonah's going down away from the Lord beginning in Jonah 1, 1 through 6? You can turn a page back in your Bible and, and just look at that. In the very first verse of the book, Jonah was called to arise and go to Nineveh. But instead, he did the exact opposite. He went down to the coast, to Joppa, in verse 3. He found a ship to to Tarshish, and and then he went down into the ship, in verse 3. And then during the storm, he had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and then he laid down asleep, in verse 5. You see, there's a clear descending and downward pattern in the text Later, when the sailors discovered Jonah's running away from the Lord God, and that this was the cause of the mighty storm threatening their lives, at Jonah's insistence to save their own skin, they hurl him down into the sea where he still moves further downward beneath the surface of the water, which is one of the main themes of Jonah's psalm in chapter 2. You see this downward movement continue specifically in Jonah's darkest moments as he's sinking down deeper and deeper into the sea, the waters closing in over him to take his life. Now here we should take note that Jonah locates the responsibility for for this not primarily in himself, nor at the hands of the sailors who threw him overboard, nor in the, the raw power of nature. Rather, Jonah recognizes God's own sovereign action at work in these things. You can just look at the pronouns, verses 3 and following. He says about the Lord, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple as if he's being cast away from the Lord. And as he's going down, realizes there may be hope for him to look again upon the Lord's presence. He says in verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. So the picture is deeper, 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 downward, downward, downward to the bottom of the sea with seaweed encompassing him. And he says, I went down. Again, there's that theme. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's speaking about death. He is right at the doorstep. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So Jonah just kept going down, running away from God. But the Lord continued to pursue Jonah in sovereign mercy. 
The mercies he pours out are the descending mercies of discipline, but God stays after him as Jonah continues to go down and continues to run. Jonah clearly understands in, this, in the storm, he clearly understands it in terms of God's discipline, in terms of God's severe mercy toward him as the prophet continues this downward trajectory toward what we might call today in our terms his rock bottom, right? You talk to any addict, they say they don't turn around until they hit rock bottom. And, and that's where we end up here. You see, God's sovereign mercy in discipline may mean giving us exactly what we think we want until we bottom out. Until we have no better option than to cry out to Him out of our distress, even when, like Jonah, our distress is brought upon ourselves by running away from the Lord. Because God is always graciously working. The place of your deepest darkness can be transformed by the Lord to become the source of salvation for you as it forces you to cry out and find that God is there. This seems to be the, the dynamic in play here with Jonah's really a suicidal rebellion in, in verse 12. When he told the sailors, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the, the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. We see there, Jonah's in a bad place. Even before he ends up in the, the belly of the fish, he's in a bad place. Remember, he could have chosen a different option. He could have repented then and there on the deck of the ship. God would have calmed the storm, and then he could have redirected the sailors, take me back to the coast, I need to go to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah is so mad at God, he attempts to end his life. We can compare this to his continued bad attitude prevailing in chapter 4, which we'll see, where he'd rather die than rejoice in God's purposes being carried out among the Ninevites. And so it becomes obvious in the context. Jonah knew what he was doing when he told the sailors to cast him overboard into the raging sea. But in God's descending mercies, once he got in the water and sank down, 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 he really began to experience what it was like to die. Indeed, he thought he was dying. The waters closed in over me. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. When my life was fainting away, which I take to say he's losing consciousness and a visceral reaction, he cries out to the Lord. He remembers the Lord. It's God's severe mercy of turning Jonah over to his own destructive behavior that finally brings Jonah to a place of crying out to God. Ironically, he prays for the very first time in the book. We had the professional sailors in the storm so scared that they were praying to their gods. We never see Jonah pray. This is the first time he's prayed. The visceral reaction. You know, sometimes we feel like we're drowning. It's in those very circumstances that God's mercies may be at work counterintuitively even when we've brought the issue upon ourselves. If we're running away from God, His discipline may chase us further underwater to accomplish His purposes. 
For the Christian, God's discipline is aimed at bringing us to cry out to Him again, to remember the Lord, as Jonah remembers in verse 7. In this unexpected way, God can bring our deliverance out of the depths of discipline and despair. Often it's only when we're at our lowest point that we're in the right posture to finally cry out for God and find true deliverance. And so it's sometimes necessary to experience a severe mercy from God to bring us to the place of distress, to a place of humility before Him. We just need to remember He's always, always working out His purposes even in the descending mercies of pain and discipline. But it's not, not all gloom and doom. God is also working out His purposes when we experience the opposite, what we can call ascending mercies of reversal and deliverance. And so we read in verses 7, verses 2, verses 6 in the second half of that, reading them chronologically, so not in order that He wrote them, but in the order He would have experienced them. We see verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol or the grave. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And then at the end of verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so we have the counterpoint, a raising up. God's ascending mercy. Things are, are looking up. Deliverance, a kind of resurrection for Jonah. The storm was indeed God's discipline. But the great fish God appointed isn't another form of discipline. Not really. As smelly as it is, it's God's sovereign mercy to bring rescue to Jonah, to bring about his deliverance from the storm and the waves and a watery grave. You know, I wonder how long it took Jonah to realize he wasn't dead. I mean, could you imagine you're, you're, you're just about unconscious, the bottom of the sea, how, at whatever depth, and then something happens, and you're not sure what. It feels weird. It, it feels slimy. It's probably smelly, really gross, but it's dark. You're just about passed out. How long did it take for Jonah to realize, I, I don't think I'm dead. I think I've been delivered. The Lord heard my cry. Such deliverances are part of God's ascending mercies, which flow to God's people only because of another man that was unexpectedly and miraculously delivered from the grave nearly 800 years after this story. You know, 2 Kings 14.25 is the only other place Jonah is mentioned. It says that Jonah was actually from a town in Galilee, not too far from another little town that you might be familiar with, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And in the New Testament, there's an important reference made to this Old Testament prophet. Jesus challenges us to look beyond Jonah to himself as one who is greater than Jonah. And so in Matthew chapter 12, Verses 38 to 41, Jesus connects himself to the story of Jonah and this particular episode in the belly of the fish in a unique way. Listen to the words of Jesus. First it says, then in 
Matthew 12, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Of course, Jesus had done many signs. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. How is Jesus greater than Jonah? Well, lots of ways, but I'm just going to go through a few similarities, but some key differences. Jonah fled God and his mission in rebellion. But Jesus was sent and accomplished God's mission in obedience. Jonah despised his enemies, the Ninevites, but Jesus loved the world, even his enemies. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jonah slept during a storm while avoiding God's anger and was hurled into the waves as the only way to calm the storm. But Jesus slept in a boat during a storm and then called the waves to peace because he himself commands the storms. In Jonah 1, the storm is sent by God because of God's anger at Jonah's obedience, disobedience. In the storm that Jesus encountered in Mark chapter 4, he calms it, and the disciples ask him, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That miracle sets up the rest of the gospel story, that Jesus is the one who even calms the storm of God's anger by satisfying the wrath of God and bringing peace through his cross. Finally, Jonah was delivered from the jaws of death through three days in the belly of the fish, but Jesus was delivered from the dead after the cross when he was raised, spending three days in a tomb in the heart of the earth, but walking out to accomplish our salvation. And so God's own son paid for our sins on the cross, receiving the punishment that we deserve, and then he rose from the dead to give us new life. If you don't know him, won't you trust him? Him today. Won't you trust in Jesus as the one who's greater than Jonah? Because ultimately, Jesus Christ is the greatest example that God's sovereign mercy may arrive in unexpected ways. There's another mercy filled reminder we, we need to receive in Jonah chapter 2. The second mercy filled reminder that's Salvation belongs to the Lord is that God's sovereign mercy is extended to surprising people. It's obviously surprising that God was seeking to send one of his prophets to Nineveh in the first place. You got to remember the original context of this book, and not just the context of the historical events but the context of the original readers in, in, in the years after Jonah's story. Jonah's story was preserved for future generations of believers, including those Jews in northern Israel who would have been attacked and conquered by the Assyrians just a few decades later. And so imagine them reading this text and the surprise of saying, what, God, 
wants to call the Ninevites to repentance. He wants to pour out his mercy on the Assyrians. If I could give an illustration of this, the historical animosity between the Jews and the Assyrians in Nineveh would have been akin to God sending maybe Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to preach God's mercy to Vladimir Putin. Or perhaps an Israeli today being sent to preach God's mercy to Hamas in the Gaza Strip. It's almost unthinkable. And so it's amazing that God was extending his mercy, his sovereign mercy, to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians who would be responsible for unspeakable evils against God's own people in the land. But God's mercy is often surprising. Just as surprising in some ways as as God wanting mercy preached to the Assyrians is God's mercy being extended to Jonah amid this miraculous deliverance. Because honestly, he should know better, right? Like us, he had God's word. He should know better. He was a prophet, I would assume spiritually mature, and yet he ran away from God and the mission that God sent him on. He should know better. And so in many ways, that strikes me as worse than the Ninevites, whose evil was at least ignorant of the revelation of God. They didn't have his word, they didn't have the promises, they didn't have the covenants. Jonah, at least, had most of the Old Testament and had experienced God's power in his life. And so God's mercy towards Jonah is just another example in a long line of God working out his surprising, steadfast, covenant love that we can't earn and never deserve. Right, verses 8 through 9, towards the end of his prayer, Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He, he remembers only the Lord God himself is a God of steadfast love, a covenant-keeping God. It's God's character, not ours, that brings mercy. He remembers this. What I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, what I have vowed I will pay Salvation belongs to the Lord. We do well to remember that God's covenant love is sealed ultimately by the work of Jesus Christ as the culmination of his redemptive plan in history. This is the same God who told Moses in Exodus 33, 19, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Both grace and mercy are there. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve as a gift, right? Ultimately, salvation by faith in the merits of Christ. It's a gift we don't deserve. And mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, immediate judgment and wrath for our sin. God's grace and mercy bringing salvation to undeserving sinners like us, is a message that Jonah should have understood, but I'm not sure it was ever quite grasped, at least not in the four chapters that we have 
It's related to his rebellion, the Ninevites, and God's desire to save sinners. And in verse 9, the culmination of Jonah's experience, his prayer and psalm of thanksgiving, and in many ways, the point of this book, he proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord. That's true. I'm not sure he ever grasps the depth of that statement by his remaining actions, but we can say salvation belongs to the Lord. Praise God. He can have mercy on whom he will have mercy, even on the likes of you and me. It's not because we deserve anything good from him. It's just his sovereign mercy. Lastly, the the third mercy-filled reminder that salvation belongs to the Lord here for us is that God's sovereign mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. God's sovereign mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. It's true that often the further we run from God, the harder it can be to turn back toward Him. We were created for loving relationship with God, but our sin has led us astray, wandering and running and rejecting Him. Without God's initiative... To bring us to repentance, we would never reach out for him. We're we're not going to casually find our way back to him. This is just a consequence of our depravity, our, our bent towards sin. We will always finally choose to go the opposite direction apart from God's grace, apart from Christ. Yet yet he extends his mercy towards us, to draw us back to himself, to call us back to the relationship that we were meant to have with him in the first place, and to change our hearts by the work of his Holy Spirit. And so I would just ask you today to think about all the mercies God has poured out on you. You know, even if you're not yet a believer, God has been so merciful to you. Instead of instantly condemning you to eternal judgment each and every time you sin, he has been patient. 2 Peter 3, 8-9 says, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So put your life in that context. God, not slow to fulfill his promise to bring judgment, but being patient towards you that all might reach repentance. And beyond that, he's given you so many gifts by his common grace. Family and home and friendships and food and experiences. Don't let God's mercy and grace go unnoticed and unresponded to. His mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. Faith in Jesus restores us to the relationship that we were created for. If you're a believer this morning, know that God's mercies, whether in fatherly discipline or in various kinds of deliverance, are always for your good, to lead you into the kind of continual repentance that is the Christian life so that we can be drawn closer to God and conform to his character. So think about the mercies in your life and give thanks to him. 
and respond as obedient children. Turn away from sin. Walk with our Heavenly Father in joy and love. God is at work. All that said, we have a part. We are indeed called to continually turn away from our sin into the Lord. And that's what repentance is. It's a change of our mind, a change of direction where we turn back to God. Sometimes, I'm sure you'll recognize this from your own experience, sometimes our repentance is half-hearted at first. It's partial. It lacks the full turning that God desires and commands. And that's partially just because sin is sticky. It's deceitful. And so sometimes repentance comes in stages and takes time to reach its fullness. I think that's Jonah's experience. His thankfulness in verses 8 to 9 seemed to be before he's back on dry land, while he's in the belly of the fish, he's thankful that he's been rescued from his watery demise. And once on land, he doesn't seem to make a ton of progress, honestly, as we'll see in the next chapters, next couple of weeks. But thankfulness is not necessarily synonymous with repentance. He ultimately does go to Nineveh because God has made it clear, you must go. You have to do this. But the remaining chapters will make it clear Jonah still has a long way to go in demonstrating true repentance. So while Jonah declares in verse 9, what I have vowed I will pay, indicating that he's allegedly ready to return to his vocation as God's prophet, we know from the rest of the story Jonah's heart is not really ready to fully embrace God's mercy toward his enemies. And so Jonah will begrudgingly go to Nineveh in chapter 3, but he's not really turned from his sin. His heart is still harboring hate for the Assyrians and and contempt for God's plan to, to preach to them. And so it seems Jonah is relieved to be rescued from his watery grave, yet not quite ready to extend that same mercy that he's just received to fellow sinners of a different country, a different culture. So really Jonah's sort of presuming on God's kindness towards him without the humility and repentance that should have accompanied his experience of God's mercy. His heart is only partially softened towards the Lord in this moment. So let's think about our own hearts this morning. Jonah seems, again, to presume on God's mercy a bit here. He even, in verses 8 to 9, sort of declares his commitment to God and and presents himself as more pious than those pagan idolaters who hope in vain idols. Maybe referring to the sailors who were crying out to their gods or or just making general statements. Yet his his repentance isn't very impressive or robust. And so I wonder, do do you, do I, do we presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? His mercy has a goal in mind, to lead us to repentance. That's what Romans 2.4 says. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh man, there's so much of human experience where we live right there. Ignoring the fact that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. No, all that said, repentance must have a starting point. Right? You don't necessarily go to zero to 60. 
instantly. So repentance must have a starting point, and that's likely what we see here in chapter 2. The reality of human experience is that our lives are messy. Our sin is multifaceted. Our repentance is messy. Our spiritual growth, uneven. If anything, the way that Jonah is presented in the book, a disobedient prophet, slow to turn back to God, lends credibility to the story because it's true to life. If we're honest, we're probably all more like Jonah than we ever imagined. But thankfully, God's sovereign mercy is at work in messy people like us. We'd never be saved without his sovereign mercy continually running after us. But it is good to ask, to ask where do you and I need to start or continue in repentance? Perhaps we need to pray with the Puritans, crying out for God's help to, to repent fully instead of half-heartedly. And so, in just a moment, I'm going to close us with a prayer from a, a book of Puritan prayers. So these are hundreds of years old. In the collection of the Valley of Vision, some of you might know that book. There's a prayer in here called Continual Repentance. So we'll close with that. But can I just encourage us, let us be grateful to God this morning for the mercy-filled reminders that salvation belongs to the Lord. Honestly, if it belonged to us, we would just mess it up. <laughs> and so that's really the, the theme of this morning and the main point to walk out of here with. Give thanks for God's sovereign mercy, letting His kindness lead you to repentance. Give thanks for God's sovereign mercy, letting His kindness lead you to repentance. I, I pray that that would be true of all of us this morning as we leave here. So join with me now as I pray, and as part of that I will read continual repentance. Let's pray together. God of sovereign mercy, we thank you for this book of Jonah and its reminders to us. We thank you that you pursue us because we would never find our way back to you. We thank you for both your discipline and for your gifts of grace. We thank you for descending mercies and ascending mercies. And I pray that you would do a work in us to not just start repentance, but to bring it to, bring it to its fulfillment so that we walk closely with you. And with the Puritans we pray, O God of grace, thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute, and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of raiment, for, though, that for thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always going 
into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it. Every evening return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen.